Well, it's exciting to be with you this morning. It's fun to see some of the pr- progress with our uh, uh, building project, our refresh project. You can see some things are changes. And I just wanted to clarify some confusion because I think that some people were, were thinking that these were going to be for some new screens in the worship center. And actually, they're for our new puppet ministry uh, to help illustrate some of the, the illustrations that I'm making. I thought it'd be easier to have some puppets help clarify that. Did somebody uh, say puppet ministry? (laughs) Who who is this? My name is Stash. Stash. I like that. I like that. And so we're going to have some some help this morning working through the book of Mark with uh, Stash actually helping us illustrate this. Uh, Those of you that do No Shave November will actually uh, like that. Uh, But Stash, uh, how can you help us here this morning with the book of Mark? I can dance. You can dance. <laughs> all right, well, Stash, you just dance your way out of that screen. It'll be ready hopefully next week for you, all right, buddy? I hope so. Thank Goodbye, you. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> so, yeah. so the hope is, is uh, this progresses. Okay, that was a weird attempt of humor. It came to my, my mind at 9.30 last night. So um, anyway, it's good to see you all here this morning. As you know, we're working through the, the book of Mark and got going chapter by chapter. Hopefully you're enjoying that even in life groups, staying connected and working through that. And the hope is, is that as we're in a particular chapter that you're reading the, the rest of the chapter this morning, we're in Mark 3 and we're just going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. So that leaves a little bit of reading for you all to catch up, to stay on task with working through the book. I want to just, in light of this morning's topic, I just want to ask kind of, I believe there's two camps of people amongst us that some that love birthday parties and some that dread birthday parties. I'm talking about ones for yourself that dread birthday parties. Who would say that they're in the camp that like, if you're honest, I enjoy a birthday party celebrating that. Like, it's, it's nice to have that. All right. Then who's the camp that's just like, Forget it. I dread the birthday. Just uh, remind me when I'm at my, my 10-year ones. You know, there's the 40, the 50, the 60. I'd be honest, I probably fall more in that category where I like the big ones, the, the 10, the maybe 15, maybe 20, maybe 30. But this last year, I had a, a pretty big one, had the big 4-0. I know it's, uh, it's hard to believe that with my youthful looks, uh, but I uh, had the big 4-0, and it was fun. I actually had a, a surprise, which I haven't had many of those in my life. My, my, we had just been here for about five months, and uh, my wife helped coordinate over at the Spock's house. It was the day after my birthday, and just last minute, she said, hey, we're just going to swing by the Spock's for a little bit, grab some, a bite to eat with them, and I was like, all right, so we, we headed over there. I, it was not on my radar at all, and it was the whole shindig, the happy birthday. It was fun. It was, a, it was a, a great time and still uh, a gr- good memories from our initial start here at the church. But I was thinking about that in light of birthday parties and being celebrated, how strange it would be to show up at a party that was intentionally designed to celebrate you. You show up, you arrive, like the door opens, and you come to find out that the party isn't about you at all. Someone else is being celebrated. And I think about that as the reason I bring that up is because what I believe happened upon Jesus Christ's arrival, what was supposed to be a party celebrating him, became celebrating someone else. And we're going to talk about that here this morning. Take a look on the screen there at Colossians 1.16 to help me illustrate. It says, For by him, Jesus... All things were created in heaven and on earth, 
He made everything by him visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, basically any structure that's in place, any person. All things were created through him. And what does it say at the end there? And for him and for him. This was all created with him in mind. The idea of all of this was to put the spotlight on him. He was to be the object of our celebration. But think about it upon initial arrival. First, the, the, the heavens got it right. The angels got it right. They're singing. They're celebrating the God, the, the creator of the universe. God in an earth suit had come down to be with, with the creation. So they're celebrating. And even the stars aligned. Isn't it crazy to think like a star perfectly aligned directly above lighting the stable? Like how crazy is that? So the universe got it. The angels got it. But somehow, man missed the memo. Man missed the memo because what had happened is behind the scenes is that what had arisen was a competing God. The competing God that had arisen was man. Man was the competing God. He was the one now that the spotlight had been turned to. And so we have all of these collisions throughout the gospels of real God showing up competing God trying to steal glory. Real God, competing God. And so that's what we're going to see this morning is the collision of the real God against the competing God of man. Let me pray for us before we dive in. Dear Lord, we just invite you here now to speak to us through this text that maybe we might actually get the spotlight redirected on the center of the party, the one that should be celebrated, the one that this was all created for, the one that gives us breath, that fills our lungs, the one that designed us and made us for your glory, God. God, I pray that you'd speak to us, that you'd challenge us, that you'd encourage us. God, we thank you that it's all about you and not about us. Pray now that you'd speak through your word. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you wouldn't mind turning with me, it's so much easier to, to follow along if you're actually in the text. We're going to be in Mark 3, 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible, the nice thing is there's one in the chair in front of you. And we're going to be looking at these short verses, which believe I broke it into two statements. And the statement starts with this from the first verse. The place that was, that was supposed to point to God. Take a look at verse 1. It says, again, he entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. All right, a couple, a couple things to point out. The first thing that I thought was neat was that much like our text last week, where it was describing Jesus going out and spending time with, with the average Joes, as it was described in the text, with, with sinners, with tax collectors, with ordinary people. We see also, it says, again, he entered the synagogue. So he was always on the go, both spending time with the religious Non-religious. It helps uh, clarify the point that I made last week, saying that, you know what, he wasn't partial to one person based on another person. He was just in love with people. He loved people. He wanted to be with them, to spend time with them. So he shows up on the scene here. It says again, meaning that this was part of his routine. Now he's in the synagogue. Synagogue. Now, 
what do we know here about a synagogue? What comes to mind? Which, here's a little bit of Bible trivia quiz stuff. What, what do we think of when we come to, to mind? Do we usually associate synagogue and temple as kind of one and the same thing? Let me, let me explain it a little bit what the synagogue was. So you have the, the temple in Jerusalem, which was this massive structure, and you've seen pictures of that outline. Uh, outline. But uh, what the synagogue was is really every single section or every little mini community would have their own place of worship, which would be like a small, in fact, the word synagogue actually means in Greek, a place of meeting. So it would have been in some cases in a smaller community, it would be just a small gathering, ABF, or in a larger, in another community might be Calvary. You'd basically had these places, these gatherings of, of worship where people would get together with one intention in mind, studying God's word, digging in, a place to worship him. They didn't have sacrifice in a, a synagogue that was just held for the temple, but they varied in size. And at that time, they're t- typically built on the rise above a neighborhood. So you go into a neighborhood and that would have been an elevated uh, structure in that, in that community. They believe that at the time of Jesus Christ around the, the region there, there was more than 480 different synagogues. So, I mean, this was, a, this was a common thing. It was part of community life, if you will. And they had, similar to us, even with the, the body of Christ now, they had a weekly gathering. Who can guess what day that was on? Sabbath. On the Sabbath, well, you, there's debate on that. So Saturday, Sunday, we can argue about that later. But the idea, the idea was that they would come together and a typical gathering in the, in the synagogue on the Sabbath had some different components. I thought this was interesting as doing some research. Public worship happened on the Sabbath and it included five parts. One part was prayers. One part was singing psalms. Sounds familiar. Blessings. Reading from scripture and then commentary on that scripture. So does that make sense? So basically, a time for reading scripture, a time for prayer, time for blessing, a time for singing psalms, and then, then someone would give commentary on the scripture being read. Sounds very similar to what we still do today. Kind of a, a neat picture. But in that context, though, a little bit different, is that anyone could, could say, hey, hey, I think I'm eligible to present from God's word today. I think I'm qualified. And they'd have potentially a rabbi that would then say, okay, well, we'll let you teach from God's word that, in that day. So that's why so many times in the New Testament, you see Jesus showing up, reading from the scroll, and then explaining what it meant. He was, the, he was, he was qualified to share with the people. So here, he's showing up, and with, uh, in, into this location that was what? Designed for worshiping God, studying his word. In this place that was designed to focus the spotlight directly on him. And he shows up and we're going to see in the text where they, the religious leaders of the time, had the intent to take him out. They're trying to set up a trap to catch him doing anything that opposed the law that he or they were under. And so what had been designed, what was supposed to point to God, had become actually a trap for Almighty God in the flesh. But still, despite this epic failure where they had failed to appropriately worship him, Jesus still, I love this about him, his eye goes, scans the entire room, his, God, his eyes fall on the person with the greatest need. The greatest outcast amongst them. Last week, it was amidst the crowd. He picked out the, the tax collector in the booth. And this week, he says, you know what? 
I'm going with this guy, man. He's over there. He's maybe huddled in the corner. He's got, what does it say in the text? The man with a withered hand. I was looking up that this week. I put a picture on the screen there of maybe a, a, a picture of that. It's basically, it's sometimes it's from birth. Sometimes it's from disease. There's a, uh, different durations people might have this. But basically, long and short of it is he had a hand that didn't work. As is somebody that's crippled and can't use their leg, he, this man was not able to use his hand. And in fact, this same account is given in both Matthew and Luke. They tell the same story. Luke tells us that it was his right hand that was crippled like this. If you can see, can see there, a lot of times bones fused together wrong, tendons not working, muscles not working right. Long story short, that would have been a pretty huge uh, obstacle for in a, in a culture that was based on working with your hands, woodwork or, uh, or, or, or uh, farming or whatever it was happening, it was almost always done with your hands. And so they're taking him out of the ability most likely to really work or put in a typical day's work. And so even that making him an outcast, if that wasn't enough, in that culture, any kind of physical deformity was typically seen as a sin issue. Isn't that crazy to think? Somebody, somebody would associate, hey, if he has this, he must have something serious going on, some kind of unconfessed deal or habitual deal. And so from every standpoint, this man in that culture, in that time, they didn't have any kind of so, like government set up or support programs. This man was an outcast. This guy was on the fringe. And I love that that's exactly who Jesus picks out of the room. It says they entered the, the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. Let's take a look as we can keep going with this statement that started with the place that was supposed to point to God had become a venue for self-righteous glory. Take a look at verse 2. It says, and they watched Jesus. Can you picture these guys just kind of sitting in the corner, just waiting to see what he's going to do? And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Wow, that's pretty intense. Now, you ever think about like, what was it that made the religious leaders at that time hate Jesus so much? What made them hate him so much? It, it couldn't have been what he was doing. He was going around healing people, feeding people, raising people from the dead. You're kind of like, what's not to like about this guy? But clearly the thing that they hated the most about him is who he claimed to be. He claimed to be the Messiah, claimed to be God in the flesh, and they couldn't deal with that. Because why? Because the message that he brought by faith alone Trust in the work of Jesus Christ simply by faith alone was exact opposite of what they had laid an entire foundation. Their entire belief system was based on what? Works and human effort and following this rule, obeying that law, uh, executing this task. Those were the things that they had based on and what would need to happen in order for them to embrace or accept Jesus Christ. They would have to admit they had gotten it all wrong, right? And who wants to do that? Our human nature, is that, a, is that a, something that comes easy to us? How, how good are we at admitting when we blow it, when we've been wrong? Now, let, let's talk to parents here for a second. Like how, how often in parenting and, and raising kids are you just like, man, I just didn't handle that well. Just yesterday, our, our youngest, our sweet little Sienna, 
Uh, we are, we're trying to get out the door for some crazy volleyball game and rush, rush, rush. Any other parents deal with this? And like trying to get children to actually do what you've asked them to do. And so she's over there on the, on the iPad mini sitting there and I'm like, are you kidding? So I go up to her and with a nice loud voice, I'm like, you need to listen to me. And then I start to see those sweet little eyes well up with tears, and I'm the dirtbag. And, uh, and later, later, uh, Dad Scott had to come back and be like, you know what, Sienna, you do need to listen to me, but I need to learn to keep my cool. I need to learn to not, not lash out like that. And so those are the things that as a parent, like we learn to admit when we've blown it, when we've been wrong, and that covers the whole scope of everything in our lives and this had exceeded that. It had become an ingrained part of the culture where they're like, I'm not, I'm not admitting that our religious system is wrong, that we blew it, that we missed God's point in all of this. And so because of that, instead of listening to him, they hated him. And so spiritual pride was at the basis, and that's exactly what Jesus Christ decided to go after with them. He's like, you know what? I'm going to go right to the heart of the issue. I'm, say, I'm saying, you know what? You've elevated me and all the things I can do in my own strength, and I'm going to go exactly after that. It's interesting if you think about pride. It's probably the most satisfying of sins, and that's what Jesus goes after. He says, you know what? You've based a system that elevates spiritual pride, and that needs to change. He starts by pointing out that the Sabbath, what, what had been initially designed, had been broken. If you think about what was the Sabbath intended for us to do? It was, it was, he mentioned in the last chapter, he said, hey, this, this was something that was made for man. Like this was designed for man to rest. Like how awesome is that? Anybody okay with a Sabbath idea? Like anybody amen to that? Like that, that's a, a beautiful thing. It's like, it's like taking that off of your benefits package. Like why would you do that? Like that's your day off. That's your vacation day. Like that, that's a time for you to catch your breath and then get back after serving the Lord. And, and, and so here he's saying to him, he's explaining to him that you're, you're missing it. What ha- had become is anything but relaxing. A Sabbath in that time had become about what? Keeping rules and all the things you're not supposed to do. And, and wait a second, this it had become, unfortunately, an opportunity for the self-righteous to parade their good works, right? For them to go around and be like, look how good I am at keeping rules. You know, like, look, look how great I am at this. It had become what? The spotlight turned from God back to man, back to me and my ability to please him. And so Jesus was going to correct that. And it's interesting that he didn't wander from the biblical intent from it. He's not opposing the religious leaders and saying, hey, forget what the Old Testament says, out with that. No, he just wanted to get back to the truth of what Scripture taught about it. But they were trying to trap him. And I think it was interesting that it says they're waiting to see whether he would heal him. Not whether or not he could, whether he would. If in their heart of hearts, they knew he had the power to do it, it's whether or not he would do it. And so they were waiting to accuse him, to catch him. But here's the thing that they didn't take into account. Luke 6, 8 in the parallel passage says, but he knew their thoughts. But he knew their thoughts. It's kind of hard to trap somebody when, the, when you know their thoughts. You know, that's kind of a tricky thing. And so unbeknownst to them, they're just about to be left speechless. Take a look as we finish that statement. Jesus points to God's plan for the Sabbath. It says this in verse 3. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. 
And he said to them, the religious leaders, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But what, what does it say? But they were silent. But they were silent. Jesus initiates this interaction with the man, much like the account last week of, of Levi. He's saying, you know what? I'm going to pursue this despite fully knowing what this was going to lead to. It's like, I don't, I don't know if there's anybody else here that would confess to being a conflict avoider. Anybody want to admit to that? They're like, oh, but I hate conflict. You know what? Jesus was obviously based on this. He was okay with it. He was okay with it. He was okay with opposing the, the, the system. Why? Because he elevated getting things back to God's initial plan, God's initial design. He wasn't concerned about offense. He wasn't too concerned what people thought about him. Isn't there some freedom in that when you're backed by truth? So what does he do? He calls them out. He, he asks them a question, and really I think his intent was to cause them to pause and think for a second. I think, it, I think his heart, we're going to see in a second, that is his heart broke for these guys. He's like, listen, he's like, is it better? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? He knew they were planning his harm even as he was speaking right then. He's trying to cause them to pause and to think, is it lawful? Who's really on God's side here? Who's really on God's side? They had been warned about this. I was reading a, a commentary by MacArthur this last week, and he pointed to a text that they would have all been familiar with. We'll put it on the screen there, Isaiah 1.13. This is God confronting the people with elevating their religious acts. He says, Bring no more vain offerings, God speaking. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates they have become a burden to me i'm weary of bearing them when you spread out your hands i will hide my eyes from you this is god speaking even though you make many prayers i will not listen your hands are full of blood wash yourselves make yourselves clean remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes listen to this cease to do evil Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. This was a description of God's preference of an act of worship. It wasn't all of these, that what it had become keeping all these regulations, this gauntlet of rules that they had to do on the harvest. So he presents to them, he's saying, listen, do you really think God's law or his, his best plan for us is for you to do this, to do good, or to do harm? He's trying to point the obvious out to them. But if you think about it, it was backing them into a corner. Because if they admit, if they said to him, hey, you're probably right, it's probably good for you to do good here, then that, that, then, then that endorsed Jesus, and they didn't want to do anything with that. But if, the, if they spoke up and said, yeah, it's better for us to do harm, like, that's condemning. So they're kind, of, they're kind of left there with no real response other than to just stand there in silence. It's fascinating how often that was the, uh, the case when Jesus spoke or confronted the religious leaders is they really had nothing to say. And that was the case here. That he just left them. He's saying to them, who really represents God's heart for the Sabbath? Me wanting to heal the sick or you wanting to kill me? Or you wanted to kill me. Which is God's plan and God's heart for the, the Sabbath? And they're left there in silence. 
So he explains, he teaches them back his design for the Sabbath. But then he, then in the next section, we're going to see he re- redirects the glory back to God. Look in verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger. Huh. Flannel graph Jesus. Grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Can you picture this dramatic scene? Like they're silenced by Jesus' word. Everybody's standing there in complete silence. And God in the flesh looks around and it, and it says what? He's angry. So I don't know what that would look like with Jesus Christ. Like God, God they're looking at you eyeball to eyeball, angry at what's happening there. But I love the difference between his anger and my anger is what does it say that his anger led to? Grieved at their hardness of heart. Even when they're there plotting to try to kill him, to trap him, to catch him in his words, then eventually to murder him, he's still, his anger moves him to sadness. He's grieved by it. He's angry at their, their hardness of heart, but he's also grieved that like, man, why can't you just get it? Why are you so blinded here? He felt sympathy for them. It's a clear picture of God's response to man's rebellion. Angry, but also saddened. It's actually one of the only, it actually is when I was reading this week, it's the only account that it actually mentions Jesus being angry in the New Testament. There's different illustrations that you're like, well, what about the temple when he's turning over the tables and all that? Yes, that's an illustration of him being angry, but it's it's the only description that describes him as angry. So this upset him, obviously. He's angry when someone opposes his work of restoration in a life. He takes that really seriously. God's the restorer, the healer, and if there's opposition to that, man, he's not down with that. He's not, that, that doesn't sit well with him. What I love is what he calls the, the man with the shriveled hand to do. He tells him to stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. How many times do you think that guy had tried to send that mental signal to his hand to stretch out. You know what I mean? Like we take it for, for granted when we're able to just be like, all right, hand, there you go. Like do your thing. Like my brain's sending the little nerve impulses and the hand responds accordingly. This man is being told to stretch out his hand, he, stretch out his arm. He's like, I, I, I can't do that. It's kind of like a cruel joke, but the amazing thing, and I was thinking about that this week, is the most beautiful thing about this description is that God doesn't make requests without empowering you to fulfill them. God doesn't make requests. He doesn't ask something of you that you're not able to do in his power. So for some of us that are just like, oh, I'm really feeling stressed out. I feel God tugging on my heart to do this, but I don't know if I can do it. Hey, guess what? This is a great reminder to us. God doesn't ask you to do something that he's not going to empower you to do it. I remember when I was first starting in, uh, in ministry, my, my, I came in as an intern at Willow Creek Community Church. We were starting a, a college ministry at a community college in the area. And uh, kind of the first effort was like, you know, we just want to go and, and spend time with these students and be where they're at. And so we started a, a coffee house ministry at this cafe called Amici's Cafe. And each week we'd have kind of a gathering, get a chance to get to know people. And we had a little mini program. And I remember the, the first time they asked me to speak. 
I was just like, oh, I don't know about that. Like, I'm super uncomfortable with going in front of a crowd. Like, I'm really nervous about that. My hair is starting to thin. I don't know if you guys noticed that. And, uh, and, and so I remember going up, and I'm just like, oh, I don't know. And I remember fumbling through it, definitely. It wasn't, it wasn't very eloquent by any means. But you know what was the reminder at the end of it? Was God's faithfulness, just like, all right, God, you, you got me through that. I didn't know how it was going to happen. And it, and it kind of built, and it kind of built. I think, I think of Josh this, this past summer being asked to, to speak here in church, and, and he was just like, oh, man, okay, I'm going to do it. And, and God empowered him to do it. You see, when God calls you to do something, he's going to empower you to do it. Now, I picture this man, if you imagine, when, when it says that and Jesus invited him to come forward, when he's invited to come forward, do you think he was one of the ones that was in the prime seats in the front on the benches, all right, in this front and center? I think he's probably in the background, and finally he's coming forward, and then you think about the crossroads that this was. What was being asked was probably the, the source of his greatest shame and embarrassment, his hand, like if you're going around with a hand like that, like you're probably, I mean, that's probably the one that's like under the coat when you're talking to somebody, you know? Like the, the source of it, his greatest shame, he's saying, why don't you stand in front of all these people and extend that? Who cares what all the religious leaders are doing? You need to do what I'm telling you to do. Just trust me. This was a major crossroads. This was a, a faith collision where he had to decide who was he going to follow? And thank the Lord, he t- took him at his word, and he extends that. Can you imagine being in that, that room? It wasn't like, oh, he had a cut and it maybe healed up. This was, this was something being completely rebuilt. This is bones being defused. I don't know if that's a word. This is muscles growing out of nothing. This is tendons being formed. This was a hand being recreated by God in the flesh that they're seeing with their own eyes. How awesome would that have been? One one version of it says that it was made to be back like the other one. It was restored. It was completely made new. The spotlight that had been moved to being on man and his ability to keep all these rules and regulations was finally being moved back to creator God. Was saying, look at him. Look how awesome he is. Look at his glory. Look at his splendor. Even, Even being seen in the evidence of this man being restored. I was thinking about that and how every single one of us, if you think about it, by definition, Webster defines restored as to give back something that was lost or taken, to return to its original condition. If you think about it, every single one of us, any of us that have embraced Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're a story of a, of a restored brought back to new, uh, completely refreshed, or, or turned back to the way it was initially designed. We're, a, we're another opportunity to put the spotlight back on him. We, every single one of us, we're the, our story is a story of restoration, just like this man's hand was, an opportunity to put the spotlight back on him. But you think about it, can you imagine those guys? The, the Pharisees, if you would have seen that, the religious leaders of the time, wouldn't that at least made your mind just a little bit like, what's going on here? Like, clearly this man, there, there's something happening here. He's, he's fixing things. He's rebuilding things with a word spoken. Wouldn't that, don't, don't you imagine that would cause you to kind of reconsider? Like, who is this Jesus character? Like, who just did that? But you know what the truth is? Is that the blindness of false religion is really thick. 
the blindness of false religion. When you've bought into it, maybe you've had that conversation that somebody, with somebody that's stuck in a lie, a belief system that's clearly flawed. And it doesn't matter how obvious of a thing you point out, the flaw in it, they're, they're blind. They, they just can't see. My wife and I had the opportunity, I, met, I think I mentioned this last week, to go back to Chicago for the first time since we've moved and uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And on the flight there, uh, I ended up getting set. It was, uh, what's the name of the airline? Spirit Airline. I hate that airline. Uh, and anyway, you, you have to, uh, you, they didn't even have, sorry if I said that, but uh, uh, that, that, I wasn't even allowed to sit by my wife. I had to pay extra if I wanted to sit next to her. So cheapskate me, we sat right, right in front of each other. So, uh, so I'm sitting there, but I'm placed next to these two elderly ladies and get started talking with them and uh, find out that they're of the Baha'i faith. And I, I realized I didn't even know that much about this Baha'i leader that they're following and believed it was an additional prophet after Jesus. Jesus. And the more I was talking to them and, and seeing the confusion in, in, their, in the conversation, I was like, oh, what, are you, what are your thoughts on Scripture? And, I was, and they're like, well, we believe all of it. And I'm like, well, perfect. Game on. I was like, let me point you to some stuff. And, uh, and they're explaining to me that they believe that the, this Baha'i prophet was, was the fulfillment of Jesus sending another helper I'm like, no, like that's not it. Let me show you an ax. Like that, that helper came, that's the Holy Spirit that indwells each of us. And I, I kept pointing out different passages and, and working through and, 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 and talking with them and trying to explain. But it was, it was funny because it was kind of like this picture right here where there's a blindness that you're like, you know what? God has to do that. He's got, he's got to peel those layers off. He's got to be the one that brings clarity to confusion. And, and that's where we left. And she, they, they committed to, well, we'll read some in Acts. And so I was like, all right, we'll, we'll start there. And so, but here in, the, in this context where these guys are so blinded, so blinded because they didn't want to believe because why? They knew that it meant change. They knew that it meant the spotlight might have to come off of them and onto God. I have to come off, to, off of them. And what does it say that they actually did? In verse 6, it says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Luke 6, 11, the same account says that they were filled with fury. The same word for fury was described as madness. They were completely crazy with anger. He had made them look so bad and they're like, oh, we have to destroy him. They, they start getting together with guys, these Herodians, I was reading a little bit about them, were secular Jews that were committed to Roman rule at the time. And they're starting to tag team with this, this guy, those guys because they're saying, hey, we have one unified thing. We want to take out Jesus. And we don't even care who we need to partner with because we both want to take him off of the track that he's on. And so they were blinded. They were mad. They were crazy with this. And so because of that, they were not ready to submit without a fight. They weren't ready to let the spotlight go without a fight. And what does it say that they were looking to destroy him? The word destroy, like you think about something being destroyed, I think of like an explosion, something blowing up and being in a thousand pieces. They weren't really willing to just stick a, a knife in his back. They wanted to destroy him, maybe even put him on a cross, have him whipped and torn up, have him beat up and bruised and, and, and ridiculed in front of all of the public. That was the end goal. That was the goal of their response. Why? Because he called them to take the spotlight off of them and put it back where it was supposed to be. How are we doing with that? 
How are we doing with that spotlight thing? Have we allowed it to kind of settle in in a life that's, you know what? If you think about it, life's filled with moments of, of spotlight redirecting. Like, hey, is it about me? Is it about God? Who am I trusting? What am I putting my faith in? All of this spotlight, it's all spotlight issues. My question for us is, how are we doing with that? How are we doing with where, if you think about your week, your past seven days, like where was the spotlight? Was it on God? Was it, or did it get redirected back to this self-God me thing? And I'll tell you what, it's a convicting thought for myself. I know that for sure. But this was the hope of Jesus Christ that he was bringing. He's saying it doesn't have to stay that way. There's freedom in directing the spotlight on him and taking the attention off of me. When it's not all about me and my wants, my needs, my plans, my, my desires, all of that, when it's not about me, there's a certain freedom in that. And that's what Jesus was, was showing up to bring. He wanted to restore not just the hand, but restore the people. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this clear image, this clear picture that you painted, God, that you weren't content leaving man where he was, that even at the risk of, of ruffling a few feathers, that you forced right to the issue, the heart of it, the pride thing. You got after that and, and, and redirected the spotlight back to the amazing creator, God. I pray for us, just even going into this week ahead, God, that that, that would be a, a something that rings in our, our mind, God, something that, that we ask ourselves regularly, all right, where's the spotlight at now? Where's that in this moment, that interaction, where was the spotlight? And uh, the way I dealt with that, where was the spotlight? And I pray you do a work on us, that you do a, a restoring work from the inside out, that we might be a story another opportunity to point to you. Thank you so much for your patience with us in this. We drop the ball so often. Praise you this morning in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. This week ahead, let's not forget whose party it is, right? And let's enjoy celebrating him. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.